Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Autosport International, live at the NEC. Come to Autosport International as we celebrate 70 years of the Italian supercar legend, Ferrari. Get up close to an amazing array of race and road cars. Meet motorsports legends, including Red 5 himself, Nigel Mansell. And there's more, much, much more. Don't miss Autosport International, live at the NEC on the 13th and 14th of January. Book online at autosportinternational.com. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review the 2017 F1 season and a classic battle between Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel. Formula One season is done and dusted. 2017, all about Lewis Hamilton and his fourth world championship. I'm your host, Ed Straw, for this Autosport Formula One season review. In fact, our season review will have will have two parts to it. This is our, our first bit looking at the, the wider stories of the championship. And we've also got Gary Anderson, our technical expert, designer of Grand Prix winning cars, doing his team-by-team technical analysis. So that's to look forward to. And the expert panel, first up, we have Karin Chandok a former racing driver and a Channel 4 Formula 1 analyst. Are you going to take objection to me calling you a former racing driver? Or yes. Are you, are you still... Yes, I'm still racing. I was at Le Mans this year. I saw you there. I was driving around, sweating in my fifth stint. 
In, in fairness, I, double stint. I go to Le Mans and I drive around and sweat. It doesn't make me a racing driver. Shut up, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so, Karun Chandok, still under the delusion he's a racing driver. Next up, we have Lawrence Barreto. Now, Lawrence, you've covered the whole Formula One season for us. It's been a, a good season in many ways. A good championship battle for most of the season. Is that just that little bit of a feeling of a disappointment they didn't go the full distance in the Lewis Hamilton versus Sebastian Vettel battle? I think when Ferrari's title challenge kind of came off the rails, there was a feeling that oh, it didn't quite make make the cut in terms of a good season. But if you look back now, um, I think it's been one of the best seasons we've had for a long time. When I look back on it, I think it's been a really good year. Lawrence Barreto accentuating the positive. My final guest is Ben Anderson, Autosports Grand Prix editor. Now, Ben, very boldly, with his ever-controversial driver ratings, answered some questions on the Autosport Forum the other day. You're able to explain yourself a bit more. We're going to give you another chance to explain yourself later as we will look at your top 10 Formula 1 drivers of the, of the season. So how much time have you spent thinking about that? Uh, endless amounts of time. It's a, it's a proper ranking, isn't it, at the end of the season? I'm, I'm going to get abuse from all quarters. Karun's going to give me abuse. You're going to give me abuse. The forums are going to give me abuse. I have to, have to steal myself for all the abuse. Well, it depends. Did you do the rankings with your I Heart Grosjean t-shirt on? <laughs> How do you know about my I Heart Grosjean t-shirt? Well, it covers up your I Heart Grosjean tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't talk about Roman Grosjean a huge amount, even though he had a, a few good moments and a few not-so-good moments this season. But let's look at the championship battle. And it was a battle. Everybody generally thinks that the, the right man won. Karun, would you agree? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think ultimately... He made no errors um, this season apart from that qualifying shunt in Interlagos. And I think it was already done by then. It, it was done by then. You know, I, I did a piece for our uh, Channel 4 coverage of the last race, just looking back at the season and, and trying to put this uh, sort of hypothetical number on what Ferrari lost. And I, I think there's a justifiable case of 97 points that Vettel lost across the year. Uh, you know, you've got to think of, everyone looks at the big ones of Singapore, Malaysia, Japan, but you think of finishing, you know, fourth in Canada instead of second with the front wing. You think of Silverstone when they should have pitted, had a safety pit stop, they had the, the window to do it, he would have finished fourth instead of seventh there. Um, Baku? Baku's, you know, Baku's the other obvious one, the moment of road rage combined with a headrest issue uh, for Lewis, you know, that he should have... 13 Easily points. He had 13 points there. Singapore was obviously the big one because it was a weekend where he should have won and Lewis should have probably finished fourth. And if you took a net swing, that's 38. Malaysia starting the back of the grid on a weekend where the Ferrari was probably quick enough to win. Absolutely. Verstappen overtook and outdrove Lewis and you'd have to say a quicker car, Vettel would have probably done that. Japan, 18 points from the front row. Uh, you know, when you when you start to add it all up, as I say, is uh, there was 97 that I got up to. Um, even half of that, and that's a key point. You know, let let's say 97 is is let's say the, the ideal scenario. You could argue Lewis and Mercedes lost points as well with the headrest in Baku and gearbox penalty. I think in Austria where he started with a five place penalty, so a couple of issues there. But even ha- Ferrari and Vettel saving half would have made him world champion this year. So actually. I think there's a good argument that the Ferrari was the better car across the season, um, or at oh, least well, as good. Well, here's the question. Define better. Well, at least as good, uh, or a good enough car to win the championship, let's say. I'd agree with that. I, th- I think, yeah. Uh, okay, so that's a better way to put it. Let's say the Ferrari was a good enough car to win the championship, 
But the fact that Lewis was, I think, brilliant in qualifying. Silverstone, Malaysia, Suzuka come to mind. Fantastic laps. Really destroyed Bottas on all those occasions when you look at the time delta. Brilliant in Monza and, too, in and, the wet. Yeah, brilliant in Monza. Uh, and no no mistakes, really, to to you know on his way to the championship. I think fundamentally the Ferrari wasn't quite as fast as the Mercedes over one lap. I think probably when you balance out all the different qualities, it's quite close. The Ferrari was probably stronger in the corners, Mercedes stronger on the straights. Ferrari definitely had the better race car in the earlier races, more consistent. The Mercedes was the, the capricious diva that Toto Wolff famously called it later. Well, the good, the good stat there is I think there were five races where Ferrari set the fastest individual lap seen over a weekend. It was just a useful way of looking at it, which was Russia, Monaco, Hungary, Singapore and Mexico. So for the most part, the, the high downforce configuration tracks, which yeah. tells the story. Ferrari had the fastest car in, in outlier places, but overall I think the Mercedes was a slightly quicker car. And Ferrari, therefore, I think they will feel this as well. They needed to have the perfect season, really, to win the championship. I mean, Caroon's pointed out, actually, they didn't need the perfect season because Mercedes also made mistakes or had problems extracting even their own potential early on. Ferrari could have done it with the reliability failures alone wouldn't have cost them the championship. If Vettel had not made his mistakes in Baku and Singapore, he would have got the job done. So difficult when you look back at it, I think. Ferrari will feel like it's probably one that, that got away. And in the end, Mercedes have, have got away with one. Their car was good enough to win the championship. They could have been beaten. But in the end, Lewis's brilliance, particularly in the second half of the year, he turned he really turned things on after Hungary, uh, went up to a, to a new gear. Uh, and that won it for them in the end, I think. Uh, Baku and Singapore was enough, wasn't it, to turn the tide? If, if, yes. If those mistakes, Baku was an unquestionable mistake. And Singapore, I do believe that Seb could have just been less aggressive. He didn't need to close Max down. We all know in the wet that you can use the grip around the outside at turn one. Could have given him a wide berth. Um, mm. I agree. I mean, think even even if uh, you accept he made a bad start and he lets Verstappen go, Kimi gets second place. He's going Vettel's going to get second back from Kimi. That restricts Hamilton probably to fifth, providing he doesn't come past Ricardo in that in a in a different imagined version of that first lap. So even second to fifth is a swing in Vettel's favour and he leads the championship going into the, the next phase. In the end, his mistakes cost him at least the chance to take that battle to the final round. It was, it was, you know, it was done two races early because of Vettel's mistakes or because of Ferrari's mistakes. But I think for all Ferrari and Vettel did not necessarily throw away a championship, but they could have made a much, much stronger case for winning it. We should look back 12 months and after the 2016 season Ferrari had, I think, I, mean, I certainly thought Ferrari would not be that that strong. There were all sorts of things going on inside the team that made you go, well, what's going on there? Is it is it kind of going back to the, the bad old days of Ferrari? But actually, it's a huge positive for Formula 1 that Ferrari has up, upped its game in such a short period of time to a point where you can say, yeah, they could well have, have won the championship. Lawrence, do you, do you think that's something that we shouldn't lose sight of in terms of the step Ferrari made? I think I looked back at the stats a few weeks ago and this is their best championship since 2008 when they won the Constructors' Championship in terms of wins, podiums, polls, um, just general performance across the season. I think the key thing this year was they managed to keep up with development um, across the year. Um, And as you said last year, it it was a a woeful season by their standards. So to be able to bounce back and sustain a challenge across this year is a massive positive. Yeah, okay, they didn't win it in the end, but I think... The morale at Maranello takes a hit 
if things don't go well on track. So I think just even that positive element that they can focus on this year will be a massive benefit next year. I think the the concern might be how much they sacrificed of 2016 to go into 2017 and be this strong. Obviously, then this year, they were in the title fight for most of the season. Will they have you know, got the balance right in terms of building on next year? No, I, I think it's different because you're, you've got stable rules now. I think coming into this year, you had you know huge rule change. Going into next year... You know, they they brought diffuser updates to Abu Dhabi. You know, an FP1 was looking at the pit lane and you could see little tweaks of the diffuser and, and, and bodywork that. Um, it's quite obvious. It's nothing to do with anything to gain in Abu Dhabi. No. <laughs> it's things that they're looking forward to next year because, with, okay, the halo is going to obviously disrupt the airflow. Um, but that's the same for everybody. Um, I, I think... I think whatever they learn this year will carry over, really, for the most part. So I think one point on, on Ferrari, and, and they keep bringing this up, is they pat them, they've been patting themselves on the back a lot about, you know, how how well we've recovered and, you know, we've had a great year, how much we've improved. They keep using the word improved. Well, Vettel keeps year. making that point, doesn't they, he? Yeah. yeah, but in a way, I think this is, this year they've done the job that they need that they should be doing every year with a driver of Vettel's quality with a, with a you know resource and the budget and, and people and all that that they've got this is what they should be doing every year that's what Alonso this, used to say isn't it he said Ferrari should be winning every year there's no and, excuse and they're, they're just underachieving um, in the last few coming back to the the Vettel performance Kieran you talked about the lost Ferrari points some of those were team problems reliability etc but there were these these moments from Vettel, the what can only really be called a moment of madness in, in Baku. Frankly, I don't think there's any any way you can really justify that. And I, in fairness, Sebastian Vettel has not attempted to do that that recently. And then, of course, the the start era where he just didn't play the percentages at at Singapore. That to me seems to be the big difference we saw between Hamilton and, and Vettel this year. And in fact, Ben, you're probably best placed to answer this. You did a cover story in Autosport magazine a few weeks ago, which talked about that side of Vettel and there were some interesting comments from Helmut Marko of course who worked with him at, at Red Bull about what it is about Vettel that means he's a bit more susceptible to that so what what did we learn about the different mentalities of of Hamilton and Vettel this year well Marko made the point that, that Vettel is quite emotional for a for a German you know everyone expects German characters to be kind of you know cold hard rational uh people and he said Vettel is much more Italian actually um than you might think uh, and it, people who've worked with him closely, they do seem to suggest that in the absolute heat of the moment, he, he reacts badly to pressure. Uh, and then you get the flashpoint, like we saw in Baku, and then later he rationalises it and all is calm again. You don't really see that with Lewis. Like he seems to have this much more even temperament. I don't think it was and always there. Lewis, no, but that's a Lewis 2017 spec. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was yeah, about yeah. to say, yes. Like, I'm not saying he's always had that, but you can see... This year, he's he's on a he's on a complete level, and partly that must be down to Nico Rosberg's retirement, the resetting of the equilibri- equilibrium at Mercedes. You know, Lewis felt totally at home at that team this year. I think probably for the first time, and you saw on track that it was very hard for him to get thrown off his game. I think Vettel, just a couple of moments where he's made the wrong decision under pressure again, because Ferrari didn't have the fastest car. There's more pressure on you to make. You know the moments count when the opportunities come, and he's just been found wanting. You know that's something for him to work on if he can. And I guess if you're Lewis Hamilton and 
we go into next season and all things are the same and it's still Mercedes versus Ferrari. If you're Hamilton, you know there's a weakness there in, in Vettel. So not only do you think, well, at some point he's going to do that, you can also start to try and play on that a little bit. And so I think you've got the potential there for there to be quite an interesting little psychological battle as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like Lewis you know, made that point even on the Sunday after Baku that you know pressure gets to the best of us sometimes. And he said after winning the championship in Mexico that he studies Vettel, he watches him, he knows his strengths and weaknesses as a character, the strengths and weaknesses of his team. And he talked about uh, top tennis players, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer, and aspiring to be like them, how they carry themselves on the court, whether they win, whether they lose. And he wasn't directly having a dig at Vettel, but it did sound like after a direct question about Vettel and their relationship, he was kind of saying, look, this is how you should behave as a champion. These kind of major moments of madness should never happen when you're at this this elite level and I think the key difference between Hamilton and Vettel this year apart from obviously the car is that Hamilton when he had his bad weekends at the start of the season he still bought the car home collected the points you know he got fourth in Russia he got seventh I think it was in Monaco uh, he didn't you know he didn't he didn't panic he didn't ruin his season by um, overreaching whereas Vettel had his two pressure moments and he, they cost him a lot of points and you know that makes a big difference in the long run I think Lewis's um, mental approaches here was uh, was remarkable, really. Um, really mature way of dealing with it. I think um, when you look at his run of form post the summer break, and I spoke to some people at Mercedes about it, and they just just talked about how how hard he's thinking and working on preparing the car for for qualifying. I think we talked about it in, our, in the last podcast is how he's literally thinking about every corner of the car as an individual unit. You know, how do I get the front left tire exactly in the right temperature window for sector three of the lap, not just sector one? And and how do I get the brakes and the and the B bell absolutely where I want it? Um, and I think Mercedes talked about just how focused and how much effort he put into qualifying. To make, and that's why he did those mega qualifying laps. And okay, Valtteri came back in the last couple of races after the championship was done. And I think no, you can't take it away from Valtteri. I thought his quali laps in Brazil and Abu Dhabi were very good. But he wasn't on, on Hamilton's level, really, was he? In the second he, half, yeah, of the year, second half of the year. I mean, Lewis just you know, there's the time gap was enormous. Sometimes it was six, seven tenths, which yeah, is it's huge, isn't it? It's huge, and and. But it comes back to Ed's original question of do we think the best man won? I do, because if Mercedes didn't have Lewis in champion in, in that car, Vettel would have been champion with Bottas second. You know, and that in a way underlines just the value of why having Lewis in that number one car was, was there. It's an underappreciated quality, I think, of Hamilton's how hard he works. Everyone sees him as just this kind of flamboyant natural talent, but Bottas, we did an interview with Valtteri for the season review and he talked about actually how surprised he was coming into the team just at how hard Lewis works to improve himself. And I think that's what really stands out about Lewis this year. You know, the, the car wasn't easy to drive all the way through the year. He had some weak moments. At the start of the season when the Mercedes was most tricky, Valtteri was getting more out of it at its worst point. But by the second half of the season, it was Lewis who turned that around. He'd worked on his weaknesses. He'd worked on the weaknesses of the car and he ended up really with none and it's impressive to see a driver so experienced already at that stage a three-time world champion still improving still able to get more out of himself through the season I think it was outstanding he certainly seems to have bought into the need to maximize every kind of little detail I think maybe earlier in his career he didn't completely 
buy into that and I think he just thought he could rely on just how how good he was at slightly extreme thing he, he wasn't ever a, a lazy driver or anything but I think as drivers get older they tend to see the bigger picture and see how it all fits together now Lawrence we recently in Autosport magazine ran a a package of features about who was Britain's greatest Formula One driver various of us advocated different drivers you advocated Lewis Hamilton so do you think this was the year that Lewis really made a compelling case for not just being one of the greats he already was as a three-time champion but one of the top kind of half dozen of all time and, and arguably the best Brit. I think so. Earlier on, uh, Corinne talked about Lewis, like two th- 2017 spec Lewis. I think there there has been a difference in him this year. Uh, we've touched upon various points about his mental strength, composure, but consistency, I think, as well. Um, I think there have been times in the past where he would have let things get to him, but he doesn't seem to have done that at all this year. It might just be because he's more comfortable with Bottas in the other car and he just feels that he, he doesn't feel threatened, I guess, by it. I think the point after the summer break so it'd been pretty much close all the way up to the summer break I think Seb led into the summer break as well I just think the the dominance that he he managed to achieve I think did he win five out of the first six races after the summer break something like that I just think the ability for him to just knuckle down get down and take advantage of all his opportunities just showed how strong this year has been for him Um, and just looking back compared to the other championship I genuinely do think this is the best that he's the best championship that he's had and I do think that given that and the way that he's responded he has joined the great I think he does also you see how he is off track and what he's talking about he seems to have a fairly clear idea of what he's trying to do and what he's trying to achieve he keeps talking about his bucket list of things he wants to do and he talks about the the kind of dilemma about how long he goes on for he wants the success but he also knows that he's in a position where he can kind of live the life he wants to so he's trying to balance up what he does in Formula One with what he does away from it. And while in the past there's been criticism about the way he's balanced his life and approached it, right now you can't for one second question that he's not right in that sort of sweet spot of balancing up, thinking about Formula One enough, being dedicated enough, but not overdoing it and, and kind of frying himself, as it were. He seems to have that very clearly understood in his mind. And that to me seems to be at the, the root of this emerging as like, an even better version of an already great driver. Yeah, absolutely. I think the team probably deserves some credit for the way they've managed him as well. You know, instead of pushing back against kind of Lewis's quirks, if you like, they've allowed him to be himself. They've allowed him to do more of what he wants. And rather than going off the rails and underperforming as a result, actually he's got more out of himself because he's been able to plough his own furrow and balance out the things you mentioned so I, I, I feel up for the team for managing him in the right way I think and, and allowing everyone to get more out of Hamilton than perhaps anyone expected and the fact is that whenever Vettel and Hamilton have properly cross-sourced on track it hasn't happened a huge amount of times this year Spain of course Hamilton passed uh, past Vettel Spa they battled on track as well Hamilton has generally had the better of it yeah Spain was a, a weekend where I found myself hating DRS more than more than I have done in the past is you know a DRS DRS assisted pass in Spain is not easy how many races have we seen in the DRS era where people haven't been able to get past yeah well science couldn't get past the Sauber could he in the same race I mean it's interesting that James Allison said that Lewis won them that race they felt that they screwed up the strategy and really that was Ferrari's race to win and it was Lewis that that dug them out of trouble so yeah but I mean the combination of the Mercedes high power sort of overtake mode with DRS meant that Seb had no chance, you know, he was just out dragged even before the braking zone. And and that to me 
yeah, it's just, a, I'd like to have seen that be a bit more Senna Mansell 1991 into turn one. So yeah, I think we'd all like Proper that, wheel yeah. to wheel, you know, rather than a, he's 20 meters ahead before the braking zone sort of thing. Yeah, the same kind of deal in Austin when yeah. Lewis recovered to, to get past Vettel after losing the lead at the start. I think we should remember when comparing the two, I think they're both performing at a very high level, but Lewis did have the slightly quicker car. We know that Mercedes has a more powerful engine. Ferrari estimate, I think they're still giving up one and a half to two tenths on average. The, much the Austin circuits. one, yeah, the Austin one to me was different though to Barcelona because as the season went on, we realised that the Merc is tricky to drive in traffic. It, you know, they struggle to follow and all, all the rest of it. You know, the wind had turned 180 degrees. I remember standing on the grid and the wind had turned this 180. And I was standing talking to Mark Webber. And he said to me on the grid, he said, you just watch Lewis in Sector 1. He said, I remember years ago when he was in the Red Bull and Lewis at McLaren. And he said, he was so good. With the, with the tricky wind in Sector 1. I couldn't shake him. I couldn't believe how good he was. And, of course, that was the same day that Lewis passed Seb when he was at Red Bull. And sure enough, as the race went on, um, you know, when, it, when Seb got the start, I thought, oh, this could be quite good here. Seb could actually hang on. This, you know, he could work out. Uh, and Mark said to me, he said, you just watch, Lewis. And, and when you watch the onboards, despite... You know, you're, you're threading the eye of the needle in many ways in sector one because it's, you know, one corner into the other. But Lewis had really interesting car placement. He was moving just out of the wind, move, using different, slightly different lines, slightly different curves, slightly different parts of the track, and just getting enough wind on that front wing to make sure he was close enough to, to get him down the back straight. And I think sometimes... People sort of, as we're talking about here, you combine the Barcelona and Austin as the two moves. But in Austin, I thought it was a incredible racing brain at work in terms of how he placed the car in in tricky conditions. The wind was really tricky, uh, and he got the move done. Um, you know, all the same with DRS and the power modes, all that. But it, it took his racing intellect and his racing brain to get that done and I don't think anyone else uh, or I don't think many others could have done that. No, he's a very clever driver isn't he? Exactly and he also said after that race that he was watching Vettel and thinking heavily paraphrasing here but where's the effect of he, I was sat behind him and I was thinking no he's he's using his tyres in the wrong place he's going to be he's going to be a sitting duck so it's like that that seeing the the way the race is laid out in front of you and knowing that in a in a lap or or two he'll be able to, to pull the pass and he managed to make that that win look very very easy because he passed so early, but as you say, Karin, it was just that whole that whole package. And certainly, if you the, the Lewis Hamilton of seven years ago might not might not have been able to to do that in the same way. And that finally broke, you know, broke Ferrari's resolve, didn't it? That was the last chance Vettel had to to really realistically extend the title fight into the latter part of the season. And having had the lead at the start, I think Vettel probably thought, "I've got this race." And for Hamilton to come from behind and beat him, that was it. You could see Vettel after that race; he looked visibly. Not distraught, but you know, a bit broken. It was like, well, this, this is all we've got, and we're not going to win this. Well, having thoroughly investigated the battle for the championship, let's let's get a bit controversial and visit Ben Anderson's driver rankings. Now, it's an all sport tradition. You do the top ten drivers of the year at the end at the end of the uh, season in the season review. So let's have a look at this order now. Number one, Lewis Hamilton. We've uh, we've covered him extensively. 
and now we're going to start to get a little bit, a little bit more controversial and see what uh, see what Lawrence and Kareem think of these. Now the number two driver, Max Verstappen, two wins this year for Red Bull. I, for a change, one hundred percent agree with Ben. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> Max really stepped it up this year. Um, I think last year he was down on qualifying form compared to Daniel. This year he really ramped it up. I think it was thirteen seven, I believe, at the end of the season. Twelve six in sessions not affected by mechanical okay. problems. So Ricardo yeah. is a Fair very enough. quick yeah. driver, so that's yeah, that's, that's what I mean. And Ricardo is a well, not only a good driver, but a very good qualifier. So to be twelve six, that that's you know he's basically two is to one, really, isn't it? Which Against is, the best qualifier on the grid, many people think yeah, or one or, of the one best. off. Yeah, yeah. So really good. Uh, to me, also the. You know, you have to keep in mind he's a 20-year-old. And the fact that he had those reliability issues that cost him big results in Montreal, in Baku. Uh, there was another one early in the year. Um, the strategy yeah, Bahrain, didn't work out. Bahrain, yeah, Bahrain, that's it. Bahrain. Austria and, had the clutch problem even before he was taken off at the first corner. Yes. And, and also, in the strategy didn't work out in Monaco where he got flipped around. So, you know, you had five races where... Spa as well? He was Yeah, but I mean, in the early part of the year, he had five sorry. races where he just... You could have said he was justifiably feeling victimized that, you know, things, the world is against me and it's all falling apart, blah, blah, blah. But he, he stuck with it. He dug deep and, you know, in the last um, quarter of the season... He was brilliant. He was utterly, utterly brilliant. And well, that win in Malaysia was oh, fantastically just, executed in Mexico too. Well, Me- Mexico, I think there's a good argument that it's the most dominant win of the season. Um, okay, you didn't have the two main number ones from the from the other two teams, but you know the fact that he he beat Bottas by twenty three seconds or something. Oh, his mile was clear, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, was, it was over 20 seconds and Kimi was 40-something seconds behind. And Red Bull were trying to slow him down as yeah, well. Yeah, but even more had he... Um, had yeah, he they let him off the leash. Out. So, you know, is um, yeah, he's an extraordinary talent and underline it. I, I really hope they have a championship contender on their hands next season in terms of the car. But he was down in six in the championship, so I'm relying on Lawrence Barreto here to uh, to give to give Ben a bit of a hammering. Or do we think that that Ben is on the money with this? No, I'm sorry, I agree with Ben. I, I, I think um, I was thinking about this when Ben was discussing kind of how he's going to uh, shape his top three, and I couldn't find a reason why you wouldn't put Max second. So you've done your job, Ben. Oh, thank um, you very much. But um, I think the thing that's most impressed me this year is just how he's responded to the, the misery, and it's been constant misery. He's just kept slapping him in the face uh, this year. And, okay, frustration, he did a couple of times let it slip in public, but I think just the way he's dealt with it has been really impressive. It's helped that Christian's had his arm around him all year, and then he obviously he got the contract to basically say, look, we want to keep you, and we want to... We want to make you the focal part of this team. But I just think the way that he did that and then in the, the second half of the season when things were going right for him and they weren't going so well for Ricardo, he always took his opportunities, didn't he? I think that's a very important thing. We always talk about how drivers, they they get a few chances and they don't take those opportunities. Max took every single one of them, I think, towards the end of the year. There was a very strong case when I was doing my analysis to put Verstappen number one, like trying to weigh up you know, all the different categories, qualifying speed, battle against a teammate, mistakes, races where you've overachieved or qualified higher than maybe you should have done. It was very, very close in nearly all all measures, really, between Hamilton and Verstappen. The thing that 
that swung it in the end for Lewis over Max, apart from winning the championship. I just feel that Lewis progressed through the year. We touched earlier on his you know, weaker points and um, you know being behind Bottas when the car wasn't strong. By the second half of the year, he turned that around and he had Bottas in his pocket completely. Max, the, the still the one thing that if you're going to say he has a weakness is that in wheel to wheel, he's very high risk, always very high risk and really asks all of his rivals to jump out of his way or risk a crash. And we saw that many times. He was lucky not to get a puncture at the start in Canada. That's uh, very Senna-esque, isn't it? It's, it's Senna-esque, but the the point is that he he did cost him he did cost the team a result in Hungary, smashing into Ricardo. He cost himself a result in Spain, going three wide into turn one. He's always on the absolute limit, and I didn't see any progression in that. You know, Red Bull have said that you know maybe he needs to look at that. Marco said last year he needs to be more patient. I haven't seen him develop that quality yet, and it's the only thing I think in a title fight. That could cost him. At the moment, it's fine because he has got nothing to lose. Red Bull aren't in the in the mix. If he can't develop this temperament of his, what usually are excellent racing instincts, then that could cost him when things are really on the line. So for me, that's the one thing that, that drops him back behind Lewis in the rankings. And sadly, I'm afraid I'm going to have to agree as well. I could try playing devil's advocate, but I've tried that before and I'm not very good at it. So uh, <laughs> Wow, well, that's a quick move on to number three. Good. Exactly, yeah. So we're all agreed on Max Verstappen. And I think his fairly distant sixth in the championship doesn't really do him justice. Now, another driver whose championship position doesn't do him justice is third, Fernando Alonso. Grand total of five points finishes, a best finish of six, down in 15th. It was still the Fernando Alonso of old in, in, in many races, but... You know, can you really say a driver who's who's that far down and maybe who had a few sort of glory runs but didn't necessarily convert them into results deserves to be up that high? Because some will say, well, if he didn't get the results, he shouldn't be up there. Well, yeah, that's a simplistic way of looking at it. I think what I'm trying to do with the rankings is look at performance beyond just the headline results and the points. And yes, of course, Alonso didn't get many points this year. It was McLaren's worst season since 2015, the first one with... With Honda, they only outscored their 2015 sales by one or two points, I think. So, disastrous. Yeah, more penalties and points this year, didn't they? Yeah, it was a terrible year. But Alonso, I think this is the best that he's been since he returned to McLaren. I think his level was extraordinarily high. He was destroying Van Dorn in qualifying earlier in the season. Overall, well ahead of him, even though obviously Van Dorn came back as he got more experience and the car got better. I just think Alonso's performances were consistently all the way through the year of an extremely high level. There were hardly any dips and hardly any mistakes. And I think it's a crying shame he's not in a top car. And I think if he was in the Ferrari or the Mercedes, he would have been absolutely in the title hunt all the way through. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think the trouble with trying to rate where you'd put Fernando's season over Vettel's season this year is... You're judging the McLaren only based on on what Fernando's saying in terms of our engine is one point something you know he sort of makes up this number which you find quite hard to believe because they tend to he tends to multiply it by by sometimes what it actually is. I think we can all agree Fernando Alonso is very very good at, at self promotion. He's a, <laughs> yeah, I mean the number of times he's sort of come out of qualifying and gone that is the best lap I've ever driven. That is an amazing. I am you know the cars a piece of you know what but I'm amazing and there's there is an element of that but hey he is amazing you know there's no question he is he is still unbelievably motivated and driven and he he is he ramps up the pressure on everyone around him and I think 
you know, every all those radio rants that we hear him have, it's all calculated. You know, he's he's got so much spare mental capacity. He's directing the rant at key people, at Honda, or McLaren, or whatever. You know, I think now they've got the Renault deal. You can see it. his tone has changed. He's ramping up the pressure on the people evoking, going, "Well, you got no excuse." Red Bull won three races last year. Max scored more points than anybody in, I think, five of the last six races or something. And um, that needs to be us. Yeah, it's got to be us, you know. And and you could just see him ramping that up. So, yeah, I think there's an argument to having Vettel ahead of him because Seb did win five races. But I won't wholeheartedly disagree with Alonso being third this year. I know, I know Alonso did, you know, did a, a fine job in self-promotion, as you mentioned. But there were some special laps. If you think about the lap that put him into Q3 in Brazil, yeah. there's a couple of occasions, I think, where he was seventh fastest uh, Spain. He was seventh overall that car was not definitively the fourth best on the grid or the fourth fastest over one lap on all tracks and there were times where he was best of the rest in a car that wasn't wasn't there so a few special performances some of the races we talked about lewis's racing intellect if you look at the way lonzo was racing massa in brazil and abu dhabi uh, very clever hanging on to the rs following at a rate that other people couldn't follow you look at the level and you think that there's no degradation there in his his form, even though you know he's in a terribly uncompetitive situation. And crucially, I think no mistakes really that I could think of was Vettel, as we've talked many mistakes this year. Come on, Lawrence, demolish Ben's argument. Uh, I won't demolish it, but I, I I wonder whether there were moments this year when things weren't going so well for him um, in the race, or he realised that there weren't opportunities to score that he really put maximum effort in. I'm not saying that that means that he wasn't trying hard enough, but I think there were particular races where he realized oh there wasn't a result there so I'm not going to push and I just think to be that high up on the list you probably need to be pushing all the way through in terms of especially when you're trying to help the team go forward and I just don't I just don't think I think he should be in the top 10 I just don't think he should be as high as top three and we have seen a couple of times from Alonso in the past Renault 2009 at times 2008 the first part of the season when they're struggling when sometimes in races he kind of develops this sort of strange sort of belligerence like he'll try and hang on around the outside of someone and then lose a load more place remember Hockenheim doing that once in the in the Renault I guess maybe we saw that a few times you know to be honest I, I, I don't know I didn't I didn't see that I thought about 2009 and you know he was he was downgraded in his ratings because of you know yeah. that not showing the same fire or will relentlessness that he'd become renowned for. I, I don't I think, think I don't think, think it's as pronounced this year no, and, I, and, I, I, and to be honest I'm not I am I am attempting to successfully play devil's advocate a little bit here because I think you know Alonso is a phenomenal driver, but uh, but it's an interesting question, isn't it? I think the point Lawrence kind of gets to there, which is you know I've done these rankings in the past and the ratings, and Karun alluded to it as well, is it's sometimes difficult with drivers who are lower down, particularly if they've got a teammate, you know, you know Stoffel Van Dorn took time to kind of get up to the the speed level we know know he's capable of, and also sometimes it's you know I hope Ben you spend a lot of time trying to analyse and. And, and spot these things but sometimes you can get away with things when you're lower down maybe that you might not when you're sort of in the in the white heat of competition up at the front so I guess that's the the argument with Alonso but that's what these lists are all about isn't yeah, it yeah I mean, there is uh, it is debatable it was a it was a tough debate between which should be third but you know Vettel a Vettel you know as we discussed extensively he had a very very good chance to win the championship this year even with Ferrari's reliability problems but he through his own mistakes threw away the points needed to take that all the way to the wire and, and you expect better from somebody with that many world championships Alonso yes the pressure's different but I didn't see the the mistakes this year so in the end 
that edges him up for me. Okay, well, I think there's a little bit more dissent there, but still, uh, still, I don't think anyone can say uh, categorically that's not a that's not a perfectly valid ranking. Sebastian Vettel, we've talked about a lot. He's in fourth place, and then in fifth place we have Daniel Ricciardo. And as, as Ben wrote, last season's outstanding drivers struggled to reach the same heights this year, mainly because of the leap forward Max Verstappen made on the other side of the Red Bull garage. So, Daniel Ricciardo, let's go to Lawrence first on on this one. Number one last year, Daniel Ricciardo. He was also number one in our top 50 drivers of, of 2016. Down to fifth this year. I should say, to start with, I asked him when I went to Baku about being in your sport top 15. I think he's one of the few drivers who's, who's won it twice and he rattled off straight away the years they'd won it so it clearly means it's clearly important to him um I think he even he admits this year hasn't been up to the level um that he would have liked to have been at the end of last year I think he said that was the best that he'd ever driven then this year he looks back at points this year where he's he's kind of matched that level but he hasn't been able to do that consistently across the year he's the first one to admit that qualified was probably the area that he thought he had over Max and he just hasn't had that this year and I think that he talks about how that's kind of led to him maybe pushing in the wrong directions in a bid to try and get on top of things and that's actually just made things worse but I think the important thing if you can look at it that way is that he at least he spotted that and hopefully for next year he'll try and get on top of it and there have been some special performances he also went on a run of around that Baku win of like five or six podiums in a row so he's had really strong points this year so I think that you know, where, where, where you've put him in, in fifth would be a very fair, very fair spot. And he, of course, had the, the run of bad luck towards the back end of the year that partly reflected what Verstappen had earlier on, didn't it, in that series of non-finish. What do you make of him, Karina? It seems to me that Ricardo's not... You can't make really a case for him being in, in, in that top four. So fifth seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument that Bottas won, won a few, won three races this season and maybe you should put him ahead um you know he was up against arguably the best driver in his generation um going into the lion's den in lewis's team so uh, you know and and his first season with the team so i uh, but on the flip side bottas's qualifying performances uh, and even the races in the second half of the year have been pretty disappointing apart from the last two uh, where he's made a comeback yeah, so I, th- I think there's a, it's a tight argument. I, I wouldn't have disagreed either way um, if you had Bottas fifth or or Ricardo. I think that you I, I almost want to give them both like a five point five really um, as as an equal because for Ricardo to be down twelve six in qualifying to Max and, and that you know they had loads of reliability stuff in the races, so it's really totally unfair to look at their point situation. They both had. You know, Ricardo's run of reliability towards the end was terrible, really. It's reminiscent of 2015 as well, when you had Kvyat outscored Ricardo, yeah. but in no way outperformed him at Red Bull. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I don't know. I, 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 if I really had to choose, I would actually put Bottas fifth, just because I think he showed good strength and character to go up against Lewis. Did a really good job in the first one third of the season, I thought. You know, races like Russia and his qualifying lap in Monaco, I thought, was really impressive, Portas's year. And he showed great, as I say, strength and character, I think, to bounce back from a terrible run of qualifyings for the last two. You know, his, I think the last two qualifyings were good and it, it's sort of got his confidence up again going into the winter. It would have been so easy to get in that spiral of wallowing and, and going downhill uh, and almost writing off the rest of the season. But... He, you know, he worked hard, he dug deep, he spent time on his side of the garage, understood the weakness, 
Uh, and to me, the fact that he, he dug himself out of that hole. And if you look at all three of his wins, he's won them under a lot of pressure from a four-time world champion. You know, but no mistakes. You know, just, yeah, Seb for two of them and Lewis are the last one. And they were ramping up the pressure. You know, I was listening to the team radio channel and they were on the radio to Valtteri a lot saying, Lewis is pushing hard, keep going. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a situation where Lewis had backed out. So, yeah, I would put Bottas ahead just because I think he dug himself out of a hole um, that he could have quite easily stayed in. Well, Ben, you put Bottas behind, so it was Bottas in sixth place. Hmm. How did you weigh up those two and how would you counter Karun's point? Well, I mean, in in the main, it's it is very close, um, and you know, the way Bottas performed in the final two races, particularly, did a uh, went a long way to raising him up the rankings uh, in the end. But when I weigh it up, I think, as I said earlier, Verstappen and Hamilton as a baseline for each of the other two, very similar seasons overall. Verstappen again, you could make a case for putting him number one. Uh, Ricardo was closer to Verstappen more often through the season pushed him a bit harder I think than Valtteri did Lewis I think Valtteri had a couple of you know very impressive peaks which you mentioned Karun but a big dip for a long time Uh, and in the end I think that on the balance of the season that just drops him slightly behind although he did a good job to rescue it I think Ricardo was a bit more consistent and closer in pure performance and speed to his teammate than Bottas was. Let's give Lawrence the casting vote on this would you have Bottas ahead or Ricardo ahead? I'd have Ricardo ahead. I think I think the time that it took Bottas to get back on top of things was just a little bit too long. And I don't feel that Ricardo really, when he had his down days, it was more to do with the problems that he was having with the car itself. So I, I think it's fair, just on balance, to give it to, to Ricardo. Ricardo also had a very, very strong final round. I know the car, again, let him down. But if you, if you, in a way, they mirror each other there. Both of them had a final race where they got on top of their teammate. But Ricardo was a long way ahead of Verstappen in Abu Dhabi. So you yeah, saw you saw had a terrible weekend. Terrible weekend, yeah. So you you saw more of the old Ricardo there, whereas I think you know Bottas had a good weekend, but you know um, again close. But I just think overall well, he, consistency he, was there for Ricardo that Bottas didn't have. We've covered the top six. I'm going to bundle positions seven, eight, nine, and ten together for the very good reason that they're all in a very similar locality of the grid. They're in what might be termed the Class B battle. So in seventh, we have Renault's Nico Hülkenberg, ahead of uh, former Toro Rosso driver turned Renault driver Carlos Sainz Jr. Esteban Ocon ninth, Sergio Perez tenth. And in fact, that Ocon-Perez positioning reverses their, their points positions. Let's go to Karun first. Hülkenberg, Sainz, Ocon-Perez. How do you like that order? I would have said Ocon, Hülkenberg, Sainz, Perez. Ocon's first full season, uh, I think he's been a... a Really outstanding um, talent, uh, you know, who's, who's who's grafted and worked hard and got his place in F1. And the team are massively impressed with him. I think they, they he's really stepped it up. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely think that next year is going to be interesting to see. Will he get the measure of Perez now across the season with the full season under his belt? And, you know, he, he's he's a really, really good racing driver. And... There were lots of incidents along the way, you know, obviously with, with him and, and, and Checo, and they're equally to blame, to be honest, if you look at it across the board, because they just didn't have enough racing respect for each other. But uh, we had the, the debate about the team was in Canada, the collision in Baku, hungry start, so there was this point where they really seemed to be falling spa, out. Spa was the worst Of course, one. yeah. You know, on the rundown, that was properly dangerous. Um, but, 
uh, across season, I think he did a really, really good job. Lawrence, Ben Zorda, Hulkenberg, Sainz, Ocon, Perez. I thought I'd just bring in, uh, we did a similar thing with the team principals where we asked them to come up with their top 10. Ah, the secret ballot vote, that's always an interesting one. Um, and so, yes, they so all the team principals get to pick their top 10 and then we um, add all the scores together so you don't find out who they voted for specifically, but we, you work out uh, an overall top 10. And they put Ocon fifth. Sainz was joint seventh with Kimi, Hulkenberg was ninth and Perez didn't actually make the top 10. So I think uh, that's just an interesting aside to um, to the debate here. But I, I would put Ocon on top of that quartet that you just mentioned. And then probably same order, probably Nico, um, then Carlos, then Checo. Uh, when Force India talk about um, their two drivers, they all, they seem to always talk about Checo first, just in terms of all the people that I talk to within the team. They kind of seem to have their arm around Checo. And I think that's important when they're when they're talking about it and they also tend to point out things that Esteban can improve on I know they're at different stages of their careers but I just think in terms of the mentality of their team and who they're back in there I think that they are back in Checo because they know that he's the consistent one within those two uh, I'd also like my point I'd probably put Van Dorn ahead of Checo just because I think well that's very would, controversial well Banderson's face doesn't look like he is anywhere close to agreeing but I just think going up against Fernando Alonso Again, for the same reason, you know, you're, as, as a rookie, first half of the year, Alonso's absolutely smashed him when it came to qualifying. But since Silverstone onwards, you know, Van Dorn started to unlock some good speed out of it. And I think he was a, you know, he pushed Fernando quite hard. And he, he you know, he qualified, his qualifying performances were pretty good since Silverstone onwards. And I think he, I, I think he did a good job to, you know, as a as a full rookie up against Alonso, in difficult circumstances with that whole McLaren-Honda situation in the package, you know, mentally, as a driver, that's not an easy thing to be dealing with. There's a lot of challenges thrown at him. I thought he coped with it really well. Before Ben counters this thorough dismantling of his thought process, are there any other drivers we've not discussed who you throw in as contenders? Um, Felipe Massa, Kimi Raikkonen, a, a pole winner at Monaco, Kevin Magnussen, Roman Grosjean, Pascal Vellan, any of these drivers... You think should be in the top ten? Nobody else really. Devastating no. silence. <laughs> okay, so now now we can put this to put this to Ben. So both Kroon and, and Lawrence certainly think Ocon should be should be higher up. Mm. Agreeing though with your ranking of the of Ocon ahead of Perez in the Force India battle. So Hulkenberg, Sainz, Ocon, Perez, the bottom four of your top ten. Plus also the case for Van Dorn. Justify yourself. Interesting that one. Very difficult actually ranking those final. For uh, it always I, is close, though. There was a, a lot of switching around and reanalyzing, and uh, it was very close. Uh, in the end, yes, Ocon ahead of Perez um, for all the reasons that you've explained. An impressive rookie campaign, very, very close to Perez, pushed him very hard. But ultimately, if you just look at the bare numbers, qualifying performances, qualifying battle, championship points, races where one beat the other. You know, without anything untoward happening, Perez was stronger over the balance of the year. Ocon didn't beat him, so I found it difficult to rank him best of that group of drivers when he was behind his teammate by every measure. The reason he gets boosted up is because of his inexperience that he's a rookie driver, worthy to be in the top ten, absolutely. But I don't think he was best of the rest. Hulkenberg for me stood out because he was not out-qualified by his teammate all year. I mean, you know, maybe that says more about Jolien Palmer than it does about Nico Hulkenberg. But even when Science came in, you know, he was in the sessions they did together, he was ahead. 
But also that team, Renault, rebuilding still. It was not an easy place to go in cold. They were needing leadership from the driving side to kind of build things up into the future. And he provided that. You speak to people at Renault, they're massively impressed with the job Hulkenberg did. We know that mid-season they introduced a big update new diffuser floor arrangement which seemed to transform the car for the second half of the year and was the foundation for that push into the top six in the championship the team credit Holkenberg's feedback for that development the reason they went down that route is because of the things he was saying about the car so he for me he's he's given he's hauled Renault essentially into the top six in the championship and made that team respectable after a very difficult first season uh yeah outstanding I think so in the end that's why he edges uh, that part of the rankings. Science more difficult. You could, you know, you could make a case for putting him behind both of the four senior drivers. In the end, what gave him uh, extra credit in my mind was some of the outstanding performances he was producing in a lesser car. I don't think you could. Singapore you, was amazing. Wasn't Singapore it? was excellent. China in the China, race was yep. unbelievable. I think one of the best drives of the year, if not the best drive of the year. And, and not the most competitive midfield car by any stretch, but he was hauling that car into places it didn't belong consistently through the year, scored basically all of Torosso's points pretty much, apart from I think it was five that Kvyat managed. Uh, and after Sainz left for Renault, um, after Japan, uh, Torosso added one more point, and that was Kvyat's Austin cameo. I think that says a lot. I think Sainz was overachieving with the equipment he had consistently and that boosts him ahead of two drivers who were in a car that was the fourth best and quite clearly the fourth best in most places. So, um, yeah, close, but that's my justification. Van Dorn, I, he, he, did, he did well. I think he turned his, his season around. That's, that's fair enough. But I don't think he's really a serious contender for the top 10 based on his overall performance through the year. He was massively second best to Alonso through the first five races and and I think below even the level McLaren expected of him accepting all the problems they had he got on top of things there were some impressive performances Silverstone you mentioned Singapore he was he was good but he he hasn't nailed the consistency Malaysia I think was actually an outstanding weekend for Van Dorn but only glimpses I think of what he's capable of I think we needed to see more for more of the season to justify putting him in the top 10. But certainly I'd have him in around the kind of 12th, 13th level vying with the likes. Who would be your 11th? My nominal 11th is Felipe Massa, I think, on the basis of the whole season. Williams, fifth best team, but not consistently so. Difficult period. He, He was extracting a lot out of that car and he completely destroyed his teammate. Stroll was nowhere near him really on the balance of the season. So I think... uh, I think, you know, Massa, if you speak to him, he, he, he feels like, you know, he couldn't have really done much more to, to stay stay in Formula 1. I think that's that's fair enough. I think this was probably uh, one of his more impressive years at Williams. I should speak for the, the masses on social media who'll be asking, where on earth is Kimi Raikkonen? Did, after all, get pole at Monaco, fourth in the World Championship. Uh, again, I'm, I'm having to play devil's advocate a little bit here because... Uh, you don't I, I believe should, he should be in the top 10, this, do, this you? Is the bit when do I'm play, you? This is the bit when I'm playing devil's advocate, I should not do. So let's just commit to this. How can you not put Kimi Raikkonen there? Ferrari driver, fourth in the championship, pole winner. Might well have won a Grand Prix without that. The fact the two reversed positions in, in Monaco or if he'd been able to attack Vettel in Hungary. So surely that allows him just to slip into the top 10. No, That's good devil's advocacy. No, it doesn't. You know, Kimi Raikkonen... Yeah, he had a he had one of his better years in you know, the Ferrari part two of his career, but generally underwhelming. You know, he was nowhere near Vettel. 
He didn't on the Sundays, especially he's, on the Sundays, especially yeah. A few, a which few, which after last year was a bit of a surprise because yeah. he was he was pretty good. There was a well. there was a better case to be made for putting Riken in the top ten in 2016, and he didn't make the top ten in 2016. This year, I don't think he was relatively as strong. He'll still be signed on a one-year deal for the next ten years or something. I think I, know, I think we saw flashes. No, his Monaco pole was was impressive, but it was still a scrappy lap. I think that was a weekend where everyone was struggling a little bit. Um, it's just too inconsistent and and makes still makes too many mistakes at the absolute key moments. You know, he could have had pole in Malaysia um, in Malaysia and he didn't. You know, he 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 screwed that one up. Well, what percentage of races did he after qualifying said, "Yeah, there are a few mistakes on that lap." It's it's just a yeah. Thing it's, it's just it, it, it really, becomes it, it yeah. becomes mind numbing. You know, with the regularity it happens, Ferrari are frustrated. They just feel that you know everything he does is seat of the pants talent. I think it's probably been always the case. They just feel if he just put in ten percent more work, the things he could accomplish would be outstanding. But when your own boss is is coming out more than once and saying you need to up your game because you know you were focused on other things in the race in China you're an occasional laggard which entertains many people yeah around Austria time I mean it's it's sent most of the paddock looking for the online dictionary of how do you actually explain what a laggard is it's very funny and you know if you if you compare the percentage of points that Bottas was able to score for Mercedes, like that made the difference in the constructors' championship. Raikkonen, a few races he was unlucky. You know, he was taken out in Baku, he was taken out in Spain. There's, you know, he, he could have finished every race in the points, barring things that weren't, you know, weren't of his own doing. But he wasn't performing impressively enough to score enough points. You know, Ricardo said after Abu Dhabi when he was asked, "Are you disappointed at losing, you know, fourth in the championship to to Kimi?" He said, "Well, he should be miles ahead of me with that car." And that's it, Kimi Raikkonen. As, as solid as he can be and as great attributes he does have in certain aspects, he's just not performing consistently at the level required of that team in that car. So definitely not in the top 10. Lawrence or Karun, anyone want to leap to Kimi Raikkonen's defence? No. Um, I, I, wish, <laughs> I, I wish Ferrari I wish Ferrari were brave enough to put Leclerc straight in, really. I think it'd be nice to see Ferrari take a punt on young talent and unfortunately they don't seem to want to do that. I think you can see why Ferrari might want to keep Kimi. Um, he he has a good relationship with Seb, and that keeps Seb happy. And at the end of the day, they operate boring. This pol- yeah, but it opposite, operates this policy of number one, number two. That's what they do. That's what they've decided to do. So if they want to stick with it, I can kind of see why they're going down that path. Um, but I think it's disappointing that they haven't got a driver capable of getting the most out of their car in that second seat. I think Ferrari wants to put Leclerc in. They just want to have a year to see and confirm what they think of him. And which I think is justified. It's, it's, which is fair enough. And I think that's, you know, if you speak to people in Ferrari, they say, well, well what are our alternative options? You know, Quite a long list. And, uh, maybe, but, but then... But, but not, not that come without, you know, financial penalty. You know, yeah. you know, people linked Ricardo to that team for a while, and I'm sure they'd love to have Ricardo instead of Kimi, but how do they get him out of Red Bull? That's going to cost them a lot of money. So they're biding their time until Leclerc is ready. Um, and Kimi... He's not getting the job done consistently in the car, but it's all the other things around that keep him in that seat. You know, he's apolitical. He's very good technically. His feedback's spot on, so he can help them develop the car. The team love him. He doesn't cause any trouble. He's a world champion, so that's good marketing for them. You know, these are these are dull reasons, but they all add up in the end. And his I, performance I in the think... car is still good enough that he, he, he could be on the grid. Yeah, but I just think if Helmut Marko was running... The driver choice at Ferrari, Leclerc could be in there. Of course, you know yeah. Marco's with, with all his faults, he he's he's able to 
make those big calls. You know, he's he drops Kvyat mid-season. He picks Verstappen up out of straight out of you know Formula Three, sticks him in an F1 race seat. He makes those big calls, which um, you know with Toro Rosso, okay, the merry-go-round didn't work out for them this year, but long-term it could be better. And they, you know, he's willing to give the drivers mileage and understands it. And I think you know it's good to see a bit of boldness in that paddock. It's just there's far too many people not being bold enough. I think with um, taking a punt on on young talent sometimes. Ferrari is a conservative team, though, isn't it? It always has been, and you know they they just think better. The devil, you know. I think t- even taking Leclerc in a, in maybe a season's time, if all goes well, I mean that's still bold for them. Maybe not bold compared to others on the grid, but bold for them given how young and inexperienced they be. But fingers crossed, they 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 do the right thing when the time is right. Uh, a quick word on the on the star rookie of the year. We're not counting Ocon as a rookie. He did half a season last year. We are counting Van Dorn, even though he did one race. So it's Van Dorn versus Lance Stroll at Williams. So this is a comfortable win for Stoffel Van Dorn, do we say? Or the yep. Stroll's high points, the fact there were some impressive ones. No, I'd agree Van, Van Dorn. Yeah, definitely Stoffel. Yeah, yeah, no disagreeing there. Both had difficult seasons, particularly at the start. I think it was quite even, an even race to the bottom through the first five races. But I think Van Dorn turn things around quicker and more impressively and more consistently. I think Stroll, we saw maybe one, two, two weekends where he was really strong and pulled it together. I mean, Baku was probably his best overall weekend. Monza was very Monza, strong. Monza, excellent say. qualifying in the wet. Could have beaten the force. Very, the very special performance there. But, you know, some too many underwhelming performances, too many Q1 exits in a car that, you know, as Massa proved, was usually capable of Q3 when it was working properly. And that's just not good enough. Abu Dhabi, I mean, he finished the season in Abu Dhabi, was one of his worst performances of the year. And with a rookie, you're expecting to see this progression. With Stroll, we're just seeing these ups and downs and far too many downs. Yeah, we definitely need to see more connecting the dots of the few high points 12 times out in Q1. So qualifying, he really needs to work on. When he got track position, he tended to do quite well. Mexico, I guess, springs to mind. Yeah, decent in Mons the race. Another, another example, but... Yeah, we need to see a, a step next year for a driver who has got has got ability, but was maybe put into F1 perhaps a little bit too early. Now, one of the big ongoing stories this year was the whole McLaren, Honda, Renault, Toro Rosso thing. So, Lawrence, the whole McLaren Honda thing, which started with such high hopes, and even coming into this season, based on the back end of 2016, we genuinely thought that McLaren Honda could be at least in that sort of best of the rest position in fourth, but it, it just went terribly wrong didn't it well i think we found out about two hours of pre-season testing didn't we? <laughs> that, that just thinking that that whole saga seems like ages ago now when you look back and given what's happened since then but it, yeah as corinne suggested it seemed like that relationship was doomed uh from, from pre-season testing it kind of just gradually got worse and worse and worse things around canada time that mclaren really let rip and had a massive get honda and uh, from there, it was just a case of just trying to work our way to part ways as painlessly as possible. And it tells you a lot about how determined McLaren was to get out of that, the financial implications of what they're doing. As Zach Brown has said, the shareholders have had to put their hands in their pockets to cover up this Honda shortfall. They've got Renault engines. So it's it, when there's that much desperation to get out of a deal, that, that says a lot about how bad the whole thing had the whole thing had become yeah reality massively mismatched expectation coming into this year you know the the 
the Honda progress was encouraging in 2016. Overall, the car was performing reasonably well towards the end, fourth best in many places in terms of pace, some good results. McLaren obviously been building up their team for this rule change, knowing that aero rules were going to change substantially. They saw that as an opportunity to, to you know, close the gap to the, the big three where they feel they, they belong. Uh, and I think they feel they did that job with the car. I mean, you know, we, we talked about Alonso self-promoting, but he also promoted the virtues of that car throughout the year. He was happy with the way it performed. He was happy with the aerodynamic progress. Not perfect, but very strong and certainly fourth best by quite a distance, I think, on the chassis side. But the engine was just nowhere near where they needed it to be. That Privately, although McLaren made a big point of not setting public expectations, they were expecting to be fourth best at minimum in the championship and possibly fighting for third, pushing for podiums and maybe the odd win if they got everything together. And they were just nowhere near that. And they knew from, the, as you say, the first few hours of winter testing that they weren't going to get there. And I think from that moment, given what they were expecting and what Honda had promised through the winter in terms of development, it was so far off. They just went, well, we can't, we can't go on like this. You know, we can't build our whole season around one thing that we're being told and then the reality to be so far off. And from then on, it was doomed. I think the biggest disappointment is that they were weak on all fronts. You know, we, we, I mean, Banderson and I went trackside a few times and sort of Lawrence and I in, in Lagos and it, you know, you can see the poor drivability the back end of the car, you just can't put the power down like you can with the Merc. Um, it hasn't got the power outright. They struggle on fuel, um, and they're poor on reliability. And and really, it's, it's the fourth out of four. And I think everyone keeps talking about the potential that they've got based on the money and resource and and the factory know how and people that they could potentially throw at it. They've had three opportunities now. It hasn't worked out. I mean, yeah, one day it could click and, and turn out well and good luck to Toro Rosso if it does. Um, but on current form, you'd have to say that's a fairly substantial step backwards for Toro Rosso. McLaren keeps saying, you know, Honda will get there, but you just don't know when because... Will it, I get it that? Could, it could be next year or it could be five years. Well, well, depending wh- on how long they stay committed... McLaren's, I'm just saying McLaren's feeling is that Honda will get there, but they can't afford to just keep waiting for them to finally get on top of things. But the, the concern for me, though, is you know we see plenty of times when people have potential, the technology, the know-how, the resources, but if they've not managed to make even those clear steps in, in three years, I reckon it's actually, unless there's substantial changes, I think it's almost dangerous to, for, to assume that they, that they will assuming they were to keep going. You know, they could keep doing this for 10, 12 years still, just going around in the same circles. Yeah, well, there's enough doubt, obviously, that in the end the the relationship broke apart. I mean, there's some ba- some basic problems as well with the, the Honda situation. You know, they, they redesigned their engine quite substantially for this season, a bit like Renault did, feeling that the development potential in the old concept was was being reached. So they had to kind of open up that, that potential again. They had to redesign... Uh, the oil tank as a result of how they repackaged the the turbine and the compressor they went to a mercedes split system having previously had everything in the v-bank on, on under this fate you know infamous size zero packaging that they started started the formula with in 2015 and that created knock-on problems so they had to redesign their, their oil tank uh, and in terms of simulating all the effects they didn't pick that one up the dyno wasn't able to do it and they put everything in the car and it just didn't behave how they were expecting and suddenly you've got all these things shaking about you've got oil going where it shouldn't be you've got bearings failing 
so massive reliability problems, which they were able to start to get on top of once they read, you know, modified the oil tank and, and thought about things. But the knock-on effects on the MGH lasted pretty much through the season. They were sort of patching it up and you know just throwing new parts on. So grid penalties quickly. I think Vandal was into grid penalties by Russia round four, which is like dreadful when you're you know this far into the formula. And then on top of all of that. You got the performance, they, so they went for a new combustion concept, knowing they needed to get more power to take on the big teams. But it was a complete mess; couldn't it didn't work? It was unstable. Drivability, which you mentioned, was dreadful in the early races. The first five, I think, I think round five they bought a new intake, and that seemed to calm things down a bit. Before then, it was awful. You could you could visibly see the thing spinning up its wheels compared to the others. So just too many new problems introduced when they're trying to make progress and some of them quite basic and you can see why in the end McLaren look at that and go we can't live like this anymore but I think part of this whole thing you know we've talked a lot about the Honda situation but Ed's question was about the whole McLaren Renault Toro Rosso you know the whole loop and we we got to start closing the loop I think on the Renault side of it as well because you know they've had a pretty miserable year on the reliability front Um, you know by their own admission, that's a huge, huge weakness. You know, Cyril's talked about that publicly a lot, how that's got to be a focus over the winter for next season. Um, it did provide one of the, you know, moments of the year in that Interlagos paddock, didn't it, with the France Toss press release and Cyril having a rat at helmet and all mm. that kind of stuff. It was um, quite theatrical how all that unfolded. But a big um, worry for McLaren, I think, in that situation, yeah. because you know, clearly what that Toro Rosso-Renault in- incident showed is that Renault hasn't been cut out to supply three teams properly through the year. And I think, you know, they would probably admit that now. And of course, McLaren are going to go in there, take that third supply, but put way more pressure on to get good quality components. So Renault actually faces a big challenge. And my fear for McLaren is they might get more performance but they might not get no reliability. And their, their argument will be, well, better we have performance and no reliability than no performance and no reliability. But it's still not going to make a massive difference to their world, is it, if the thing keeps breaking down all the time? Well, McLaren haven't really got anywhere to hide now. Over the last couple of years, they've obviously had Honda. And when Honda's gone wrong, they can blame it all on Honda and we've got the best chassis, uh, etc. But this time, they've taken this punt to go with Renault. And if this doesn't work, where do they go? They haven't got the fallback now of all that money coming in from Honda. So they, they're actually under the cost just to, to survive. They're, they're going to start finding themselves under the cost to survive. Corinne, you pointed out that the problems that the Renault have had. And they haven't really shown any signs over the last couple of years that they're getting on top of all of those problems. Okay, fine, they find bits of performance here and there. But they've got the same problems, the same shock problems um, at Viri that they've had for years now so what's to say that they're going to be any better this um, next year but that's completely what McLaren are banking on which is massive and, and they've got the financial they've got that financial cushion that they had from Honda well of course McLaren really wanted a Mercedes engine didn't they but well, you would, they couldn't you? get one so yeah, they've, they've taken the best engine that they can get and they're, and they're going to be measured against Red Bull aren't they which is you know a high a high bar and it's it's very easy the mclaren is clearly a good a good car you can see that on track but i think they've got to be a little bit careful about just assuming that it's going to be great because if they're half a second a lap slower than red bull then it's like well, okay yeah you're doing better but you're still a step behind where red bull is they're not they're not as strong at low speed i don't think as the red bull at the moment i think there's elements where they're probably equal and they would say in their analysis some tracks they feel they're stronger but I mean, every team has vastly different ways of predicting how strong each other's car is they don't always add up but the mclaren is a good car um 
but I don't think it's quite on the Red Bull level. Um, but I mean, that's part of the attraction, I guess, is that they can find out now. They've done all this work and they feel that they're going in the right direction, but they've got no benchmark. At least now they will have one. And the other side of this is from Toro Rosso's position. Not only have they got the Honda engine next year, which is going to be an interesting uh, challenge for them, but they almost relinquished a position in the Constructors' Championship as a result of this because they lost Carlos Sainz Jr. to Renault as a, as a result of this. And then they ended up with this Brendan Hartley, Pierre Gasly lineup. Both good drivers who did, did do varying levels of, of decent jobs and have justified their places for next year. But they only just got pipped by Renault to seventh in the Constructors. And there's a it's about five and a half million, as much as six and a half million dollar step, depending on what the overall revenue is. And they almost relinquished that as part of this. So that, their season ended with a with this whimper, almost, having started with Franz Toss saying, yeah, we're gunning for fifth place. It's he all, says that every year, though. Well, there's, there's, there's been some very bold predictions for him. But, but it just seems to be quite a strange situation, Toro Rosso's. And it seems that the reason they want the Honda deal is because of the... It's good commercial terms for them for long term, and I, and I guess it's almost like the hope Honda will get its act together is almost this this secondary thing that might might come off, and this is almost more about just a a commercial decision for that they're, thing. They're not masters of their own destiny, though, are they? That's well, I mean, Red clear Bull in this situation. As, oh yeah, they could. In they terms could of Red be Bull's a, perspective. It could be a proving ground for a potential Red Bull switch, I suppose. But I mean, Toro Rosso, you know, they they're not. They've always considered the Red Bull B team and, you know, like Matashit's second team, but he doesn't he doesn't fund the Red the Torosso operation in the same way that he does the Red Bull operation. It has to kind of stand more on its own two feet and increasingly so in recent years. So um, you know, they they don't have the the resources that they need to be properly competitive. You could see this year that development wasn't as strong as they, they hoped and it tailed off. So they've got they've got problems there and coming in with a Honda engine which has its own bag of problems to add into the mix it's going to be tricky for them They're and also with no reference i think that's a that's a problem you got you're going to have two basically two rookies yeah um okay they've had a bit of bit of mileage this year but basically the two rookies and an engine that no one else has got where's your reference you know how good is your car how how what area of the package do you need to work on yeah. i think they're in a really they're in a very different situation to mclaren honda because McLaren knew that whatever happens, Alonso will drag it out. You know, he will drag the absolute maximum out of that package. Yeah, he's there. So reference. at least there was one, yeah, one solid cog in the wheel that was your reference plane. You know, that that's a tricky thing for Torosa. Yeah, Torosa doesn't have that. It doesn't have science. Doesn't have Verstappen. It doesn't have you know even a stronger car relatively as it had a couple of years ago. I mean, a couple of years ago, the Torosso was a match for some of the best cars on the grid at high speed. I remember at Silverstone, like people were massively impressed with how quick that car was. They haven't retained that under the rule change. James Key, technical director, quite disappointed actually that they don't haven't retained that strength because they were aiming to, and that car can work, but it can't work across a full spread of cornering challenges they can make it good at high speed but terrible at low speed they can make it better at low speed but it loses the high speed so they've got quite a few problems just getting that chassis to work and now you're adding in new variables of driver lineup plus an engine which is you know difficult no one else is using needs a lot of work itself like I, I can only see that team in the short term unless Honda suddenly magically comes out in winter testing next year with a mega engine they're going to go backwards knowing Alonso's luck it'll probably happen won't it <laughs> yeah. and it, it's just difficult with Toro so it seems like a team without a real proper purpose I know it's the proving ground for Red Bull's drivers and they have used it 
well for that. But, you know, it's it's an open secret. That team is sort of for sale. It's not officially for sale. But if somebody comes in with an offer, and crucially, they're willing to keep it in Fianza, which I understand is one of the, the terms, because that team goes all the way back to Minardi days. It's very rooted in the, in the, in the locality. So they don't want it to be just treated as kind of a franchise and, and uprooted. Then... Red Bull will be quite happy for it to be for it to be taken on taken off their hands. So it's it's different. There's good there's some good people there. James Key's technical leadership, from what I can make out, seems to be seems to be quite sensible. <laughs> but you can imagine if you're on the inside of the team. When Renault came in, there was all this talk about the synergies with the main team and technology, and that's all gone out the window. And it's now like, oh, okay, we got we'll have Honda. And it feels like a partly partly commercial and partly a bit of a hit and hope from Red Bull of just in case the Honda comes good. And if well, that's the, exactly what it is. And if the Honda yeah. engine does come really good then it'll probably find its way into to the Red Bull. And even if Toro also keeps so Honda as, a, as another supplier, which would be logical, it'll, st- it'll be the second team again. So it, it's almost like if it goes really, really brilliantly well and Honda suddenly does pull a rabbit out of the hat, they won't have a, a massive long-term benefit in terms but that's of... That's their point, though, isn't it? They're, they're not there to be a number one team. They're there to be a number two team. Yeah, they're there so to help Red Bull be. out, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah sure. There's some Red Bull drivers in there. They want to see how they get on and they maybe want to get their hands on that engine if it turns out to be any good. Red Bull get a year of grace to see how but, Honda get on with Toros. But if that's your sole purpose, that's your one thing that you exist for, then you have the best available engine which would be keeping the run, wouldn't it? So it's... It's why it kind of falls between two stalls. But uh, but they long felt that they weren't getting very good service from Renault. They always felt like they were the third best team. And I think they were just sick of that. I know they don't. It's not ultimately their decision, but they were just getting a bit bored true, of it, weren't but, they? You know, yeah. third best to fourth best isn't necessarily, you know. Well, Toro Rosso see it as an opportunity on the flip side to get that attention that they feel they haven't been getting. You know, they will be Honda's sole partner next no year. No question so about that. Yeah. They get the chance to work with the manufacturer closely. You know, James Key was saying we get to, you know, package that engine how we want in the car. We can do proper integrated work, which they haven't been able to do thus far. So there are some opportunities there, but they come with massive risks as well. The other big talking point that's been bubbling along this year has been Liberty Media. Their first full year in, in charge of Formula One and the commercial rights we're starting to see a few small things happening, but what do we make of the Liberty Media revolution? Has there even been one? Uh, I don't think there's been a full revolution, and I, I don't think we would expect to have a revolution. I think um, I think we talked about it pre-season that really until 2020, nothing's dramatically going to change. You know, to me, having a rebranding of the logo and doing a bit of social media, you know, allowing social media to happen in the paddock for teams and all that kind of stuff low-hanging fruit yeah it's just it's just a few bits and pieces really i I think you know the the big thing is you got two big key points the distribution or the redistribution of money is that going to change how are you going to even that out how are you going to bring the costs down uh, and probably the third thing is actually the engine. What, what, how will you define the shape of the engine and the and the technical rules? You know, you, they've got three key cornerstones to cross between probably now and 2021, you'd say. Um, but, the, but two of those things have been partly addressed. We've got a, a basic outline for the engine. And on the second point of bringing costs down, all that's going to do is put costs up. So That's what I'm saying. I, so, I don't see even the... You want to see some indicators of there being a very clear plan for that 2021 point but yeah that's what i'm saying i i and and also the engine thing i'm pretty confident that we're only seeing version one you know i'm sure there's going to be multiple 
tweaks and variations and they've got to address the costs. It just, you can't justify it in the world today to have three, four hundred million spent and, you know, 1,200 people working to send two cars around, around in circles 20 times a year. Well, well they want to make... makes no sense. They want to make money. And, in fact, the F1 teams want to make some money as well. Now, there's base in broad brushstrokes. There's two ways you do that. You either reduce your cost base or you increase your profits. Now, reducing the cost base seems the obvious way to do it, but that's extremely challenging when you've got competing manufacturer teams that, that want to Well, you've got three. You, you got, you've got three people who will oppose a big cost reduction. Admittedly, they are the three biggest draws for the fans and the spectators with Ferrari, Mercedes and Red Bull. But I'm sure if you went along to Renault and said that what they're spending, which is less than those three teams, is going to be the top budget, I'm sure Renault will be quite happy to stay. Well, you say that, but so would every organisation. Everyone wants everything to come to them, don't they? Yeah, but I think the way that it'll happen... Uh, you know, the way to bring that cost down, I'm not convinced that Ferrari, Mercedes and, and Red Bull would easily give way on that. You know, you mentioned Liberty wants to make money and why would you, you know, buy up an op- operation like Formula 1 unless you unless you did want to do that? Um, I think that they're going to chase the cost base, aren't they? From what we've seen, we're only getting really the first signs of what their, you know, their real battle plan is, if you like. To start with, I think it was just, you know, this organization isn't bernie so it's just you know the the joy of the new it seems like they want to get the cost down they want to make the team smaller spending less they want to have cheaper engines as part of that they maybe want to have cost caps and then that way they can uh, that way they can give the teams less they, of a share they can of give, the revenue yeah exactly they can that, give the team the less revenue they also want to expand the calendar have more races which suggests that they want to charge promoters less because previously it seemed like that was the real pressure point that people were signing these deals that were basically unsustainable and unaffordable they're thinking right well we need the events if we lose the events we've got nothing so let's have a bigger calendar but costs us less or we get less revenue from each of those events but we won't need to spend spend more on the teams because we've reduced the cost base and then their profit margin in the middle of all of that but it seems to me that and i don't want to be too negative about liberty overall because the point is this is a really really difficult thing to do that the business model has kind of got to a point where it's very very where it's, it is ultimately unsustainable it's out of control isn't it and really you if you wanted to make such a big change bring about that revolution to achieve all those things you're going to upset someone aren't you yeah. so i mean lawrence do you see signs that liberty has got that resolve to upset some people you know if it's the best thing for formula one let's just say a hypothetical it's something you could do and you'd lose ferrari but it'd be great for formula one overall do chase carey sean bratches ross braun have the resolve to do something like that i'm not sure they've got the resolve to allow ferrari to leave f1 on their watch i don't I but this is a hypothetical quite... let's just say that happens to be that's the most obvious yeah i, I think they have some, got... sometimes doing something big like that there are examples of it working I think they have the guts to go and make big changes because I don't. At the end of the day, they want to make money, so that they know they're going to have to make their decisions, and I think they will do. I think the level to which they will make, the extent to which they'll go to that, I'm not sure how hard they would go. Um, ben touched on it on the promoters thing. I think it's quite a big thing to kind of start offering races for a lot less money than Bernie used to do because clearly the money is there if you go to certain countries. And ask but hang on, you so, want so, but if they want to do more races to charge the promoters less more races is more cost for teams there's more staff demands because if it's 25 races there's more rotation of personnel etc so it's 
it's difficult, isn't it, as to as to where where Liberty sees the teams as assets and how much they just see it as something purely to to exploit. Are they going to be really in in it with the teams? Because that's the best model, isn't it? If you have the the commercial rights holder and the teams really together, rather than just the, the teams being seen as a as an asset to be exploited. I think they're finding that harder. I think they're finding it harder to get everyone on board. I think they. I think when they came in, I think they tried to be very open and were saying we were going to take our time. And we're kind of hoping that teams might all jump on and say, yeah, we want to get involved. And I don't think it's quite worked out that way. I think that, I think that a lot of things that they thought were going to happen haven't happened. And that's why we're over a year into them coming in and they haven't really felt like they've made that much progress nor put in those kind of stepping stones at the bottom to, to kind of feel that they can build on. It's it's often easy to um, disagree with Eddie Jordan, but I had this conversation with him in Abu Dhabi uh, about when he got started in F1. And he said, you know, if we look back in 87, you had all the turbo teams. Sorry, in 86, you had the turbo teams. And then I think it was 87. Effectively, there was like a division two, the Jim Clark Cup, I think they used to call it. For the yeah, because 86, 86 was turbo only. And then the normally aspirated yeah. teams came back in. Yeah. yeah, in 87, you had the, the non-turbo teams. Um you know, in almost like a division two with their own points and their own thing going on. Can you remember who won? Uh, Tyrrell with uh, Palmer, wasn't it? Yeah, spot on. There you go. Um, but over time, the 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 rules came back towards those guys because it was cheaper, you know, and, and effectively the, the turbo teams, it, it made it cheaper for them to go normally aspirated and it, it came that way. Uh, and therefore, you know, by the time you got to 1991, you had, you know, so many cars were pre-qualifying and the grids filled up because they could buy engines off the shelf. And, uh, yeah, I think 89, like, there were 39 cars. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, significantly more than there were in 86, for example. So, and it's almost, and you know, it's almost like you need something like that to happen where they just commit and say, you know what, it needs somebody with a conviction to say, these are the rules. It's going to be this low-cost formula, and we, we're going to bite the bullet and do it. And you know what, Ferrari, Mercedes, and Red Bull, if you don't like it and you're going to go, unfortunately, we'll miss you, but so be it. You know. But, and, but, here, and, but here's the big question of that. What you say there makes perfect sense. But what is the formula that is low-cost that does not allow people to find some way to spend money to gain an advantage, even if it's a, a lesser advantage and it might be it be another things without uh, a formalized budget cap i think i think you create a set of regulations where it becomes a diminishing return you know where let's say you if you're going if today you spend 10 million and you gain let's say three tenths a lap time you tighten up the rules in a way that if you spend 10 million you only gain half a tenth um People aren't stupid. They're not going to keep plowing ten million or down the drain for it. You know, there will be a self-policing but, system at but some point. If you were to make that point thirty years ago, the situation we've got now, people would think was was wouldn't that wouldn't happen? Like people wouldn't spend the money they're spending now on these gains. The, standard, the point is, like people always find ways. Stuff. If you did, if you said you're going to have a front wing which is a two-plane front wing with a flat surface end plate, you had standardized brake ducts, things that the Joe Blogs in the grandstand doesn't care about. If you had standardized parts on the on the power unit side and, and you know, a standard MGUH, standard this, standard that, 
you brought the engine power unit cost down to five million. Um, you could do a standard uh, things on, on the surfaces. You know, you could do a standard diffuser. You could do lots of standard parts. And then let's say the teams have freedom on on certain top surfaces and and certain bits down the so F three route. Then, but yeah, but, that, but that's the thing. How do you again? Everything you're yeah. saying here makes sense, but how do you do that without becoming so close to a spec formula? And is the spec formula yeah, actually... I think, I, I think that's the way that they, they're talking about going, isn't it? You, you see some of the comments from Braun, and he's talking about some of the, the bits you mentioned, standardising certain bits of the engine, standardising bits of the car. I think they want they want to go down that route where it becomes pointless to spend the money in pursuit of the performance. Christian Horner's argument always against budget caps is exactly that. He says, frame the rules in a way that it's pointless for me to spend 100 million. He's not saying that people won't spend that, because as you say, they always will, but make it so that it's not really worth it. And a, a team that doesn't spend that, that spends a third of that or less, is still competitive. And and then you'll have stories like Leicester City and Formula One. You know, you'll have midfield got, teams. I, I, I've just got to throw in, Leicester City is such a profound outlier in a very specific set of circumstances. We've got to be really uh, careful uh, agree, about agreed. citing that. But, but what I mean is, okay, let, let's go back to an F1 analogy. You'll have situations like Maldonado winning Barcelona 2012. You'll have seven different winners in seven races. You could have the odd race where when the tyres are in the right window for a particular car, for a particular team, you'd get a midfield team, get a great result. You know, you used to have that. You used to get a Guri Suzuki on the podium in Suzuka. Um, you used to get, you know, an Onyx on the podium in Estoril. You used yeah, to have Stephanie these results. And we don't get it. I think we'd all we'd all like to see that, and that is a valid direction. It's just a finding a way that it really works because there's always the un- unintended consequences, aren't there? In terms of you can close all these areas where you think performance will be gained, and something else can be found. So it, it's to me, it's that challenge of finding controlling it tightly enough to keep it under control without other things creeping in that you might not have thought of, but also maintain. This is where I'll use the a DNA of the DNA F1. argument that people people say they want the cars to look different they want their the chance for technology and and innovation to to influence things so it's just this it's this big sort of circle and again and this is this talked is, this about for a few years it's what exactly does f1 want to get to this, this is braun's challenge though isn't it it's, no one said it's easy but it does seem that fundamentally they realize they need to bring costs down it's not sustainable as a whole so that seems to be the fundamental drive, whether you do it by budget caps or regulations or a mix of both. That's what they're going to try and do. The, the other problem is but, as well, though, is that what we're talking about here. Let's say you do that. So a lot of people are going to be put out of work by it, which is a... Yeah, I know, a, I know it's better to put some out of work and have things sustainable. But, you know, there's all these things that feed into it. And suddenly if you're... I can understand if you're Red Bull or... Mercedes or Loud has made the argument for yeah, Mercedes, hasn't he? He said, What do we do with these employees? Do we just put them on the street? But ultimately, it's going to come to that. You know, it either carries on as it. Well, if all unemployed, yeah, and, that, and that it maybe that everyone loses their job, or there'll be some tough decision made where this this is how yeah. it goes. It happens uh, in life all around. It's not a unique case. I was going to say it's that, that, that's a hard argument because everyone's obviously obviously looking after themselves, but you you get. You, What's the answer? You know, do does a, a team like Mercedes lose, let's say, I don't know, 500 people? Or do teams in the midfield just disappear altogether? And then you're losing thousands of people uh, across the board. So, uh, 
not easy, is it's it? Not, I don't think that's a... That's a. I don't think that's a problem you can solve. I think if you can make the entire sport, you know, at the end of the day, if you make the cheaper, those people that you lay off from Mercedes, let's say Ben Anderson Racing starts a team, they'll all find jobs there because they're coming with great CVs from the World Championship winning team. And I think you'll find you'll you'll find a redistribution of those people. Yeah, you have to create the environment yeah, for it, don't you? I think probably the most sustainable model, if we try and find one that already exists, is the Haas model, isn't it? It's buy yeah. as much of the car off the shelf as you can, run a small, tight racing team. If if that can become more affordable than it is now through other elements of specification or what have you, you could end up with other teams joining the grid in that model and then you as you say you can redistribute the jobs the, the trouble that you always have is that formula one the difference between a formula one team and a team in any other form of single seater racing pretty much is just vastly different yeah, but I, I so don't you're not going to get your onyxes and your you know your yeah. pre-qualifying teams unless you bring that deficit down but more than Haas, i'd even look at the force india model because Haas is totally outsourced and people will have issues with that the Force India model, you know, you outsource the drivetrain, and you outsource, but you do still the aero stuff in-house. And, and this argument of, you know, they want the cars to look different. You know, Gordon Murray was saying yesterday how the cars today, and he's absolutely right, the cars today, if you paint them all white, look more similar than they did 20 years ago when you painted them all white and tried to pick the differences. You know, it's, it's that that argument doesn't hold up. All of this discussion, sort of the purpose of, of this is to show how difficult it is because it's very, very easy to set the kind of broad brushstrokes objectives, but it's very, very difficult to actually be able to, to deliver on that. And I think that, for me, the key is that if you can get, if you can get the governing body, which is still technically the FIA, they are still the regulator, the commercial rights holder and the teams can genuinely just try and set aside the 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 competitive element and just say right actually we can we can do this we can make ourselves collectively stronger but it's so hard to do that and it's difficult when you've got companies that have their own individual focuses you know if you're if you're in the position of Toto Wolf and Nicky Lauder at Mercedes you know if you can't keep your board happy or convinced your board it's worth doing then they shut the team so they're at the same time fighting for their for their team and their employees and the, and the future so it's it's really complicated with all these these different agendas to uh, to find a way to do it and that's the incredibly difficult challenge i think that liberty faces yeah there's a big uh, crossroads isn't there approaching 2021 and you mentioned force india and i mentioned has i mean has of freezing recruitment now because they don't know which way it's going to go and they don't want to hire a load of people that they then have to sack because they're limited to this cost cap or this number of employees and force india who've always been the model of how to do things leaner and more efficient as they've got more competitive talk about doing more and more in-house and becoming a bigger and bigger team so because the, the current model demands that you go that way so both of those teams at diff- for different reasons need clarity well at the risk of ending on a, on a negative note we should just loop back to the fact this has been a, a very good season there have been some great stories a great title battle that did fizzle out a bit but still best season of the v6 era no question and it, and it promises a lot for next year you know if Ferrari and Mercedes can still be there and if Red Bull could just take a bit of a step with Renault and if McLaren could be there none of those scenarios happen where everything aligns but it could be a five-way mega fight couldn't it if Renault really did sort it out and you've got Red Bull competitive the Renault Works team competitive you've got McLaren competitive with Ferrari and Mercedes suddenly that looks like a really tasty championship yeah to me there's no reason why 
Mercedes and Ferrari won't be there again next year. For me, all eyes when when we get on that plane to go to Barcelona preseason, um, as we always do, it, uh, the the eyes are going to be on Renault. You know, can the Renault power unit deliver what Red Bull and McLaren want? For me, that is the that is the key defining question of how 2018 will turn out. Yeah, it's reliability in that qualifying magic mode, isn't it? If they can find those, because we know in the race trim, the Renault engine is pretty much there with the Ferrari and the Mercedes. So if they can find those two bits, then we're in for a, for a great year, hopefully. That's a more positive note to end on. So thanks very much to Ben Anderson, Lawrence Barreto and Corinne Chandock for your insights and analysis. And thanks very much to the listener for listening to us going on for so long. So keep an eye on autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula One and the rest of the world of motorsport. And also check out our Plus subscriber area where you get all the in-depth features and articles and columns on every topic, pretty much. Autosport Magazine out every Thursday and check out sister titles F1 Racing and Motorsport.com. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Here, you'll join a community where diversity equals vitality, where support and empowerment lifts spirits and propels ideas forward. Fearless, innovative, connected. UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.